Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. And I'm Ashani. This is episode 34, One Does Not Simply Speak With Mouth. As always, there will be spoilers for the... Goddamn. <laughs> Fuck. Okay. You always know it's a As good always, title when we can't sp- even get through saying it. <laughs> I managed to get through saying it, and then I couldn't get through the rest. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead. With that said, let's get into it. Hi. Hey, guys. <laughs> Hello. Uh, I see none of you brought an army of the dead with you today. <laughs> none of us, and also not Aragorn. <laughs> so, hey everyone. We are today talking about, um, I think what are probably my favorite chapters in these enti- this entire series. Uh, chapters 5 and 6 of Return of the King. Um, Ride of the Rohirrim and the Battle of Pelennor Fields. Uh, so this is, I feel like, finally the mega payoff for all the fight scenes that Tolkien has avoided writing up until this point. But basically, we just get uh, Merry riding to the battle alongside the Rohirrim, um, basically with his internal monologue being like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, the whole time. Um, some regrets. Yeah, no, no regrets. Uh, he definitely is like not so sure about his decision anymore. Um, but he decides to keep going, mostly because I don't think he really has anywhere else he can go at this point. He's kind of stuck, but he comes up on Gondor, uh, after a brief detour with the Wild Men, which we will talk about. (laughs) Um, but they come up on, on Gondor and they see that the orc army has essentially already, like, laid waste to most of the city and they're like, oh, are we too late? But they sense a change in the wind, and so they ride into the battle anyway. Uh, we get our epic Theoden fight sequence, followed by Eowyn fighting the Witch King sequence. And then, finally, a little bit late, uh, our hero Aragorn arrives to be the deus ex machina that they needed this whole time, and rescue everyone, and conquer the orcs. In a pretty... I thought actually unsatisfying ending to this chapter where it was just like he shows up and a lot of people are dead and he's like it's okay I'm here now anyway yeah, without the dead people <laughs> we, yeah without the army of the dead so we were like just talking about this before recording because I thought I had made some kind of mistake in reading uh, where I was like isn't the army of the dead supposed to be here? Isn't this the whole reason he went through the paths of the dead and recruited them so that they could come and, like, defeat all of the orc army? Nope. Uh, so <laughs> I just had to Google this because I was like, where actually are they? Did I miss something? And it turns out, no, they're not here in the text. Uh, Aragorn apparently released them from their oath right after he basically used them to take over the ships from the Corsairs. Okay. That sounds like an oversight. (laughs) It seems like, yeah, it seems like they were not utilized to the fullest extent of their, you know, I mean, they could, because he really could have done anything with them. 
Yeah, also, right. I mean, that the the whole Corsair ship overtaking was definitely a battle in the lead up to the big battle. Like even he knew that. So Right. No, you- I mean, and <laughs> the promise wasn't like you will help me with one thing. It was like you're supposed to fight at our side, right? Like Well, until he releases them from yeah. their oath, which he could have just waited to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's not even just come with me to the battle at the Pelennor Fields, like, there's still Sauron to deal with. Yeah, also that seems like a great distraction while Frodo takes the ring to Mount Doom. Yeah, Um, I mean, it really does seem like an unkillable army that has waited centuries to be released could hang on, like, another week. Right? (laughs) Like, at that point, it's not, oh my god, you know, the next three days are really critical because we have some super important business to get to being dead. Yeah, it's also like not like they're making some big sacrifice either. They're already dead. They cannot be killed again. Uh, clearly, it's Peter work. Jackson agreed with us on this. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but also, like, yet again, Aragorn demonstrates some poor leadership skills. <laughs> Where's the foresight, my man? Is it Aragorn or Tolkien we should be worried about at this point? <laughs> like, yeah, both. Both. <laughs> Yeah, and it's funny in that context because he does come in like sailing in on his new Elendil or Erevalendil in, in, in his new swag, right? He's like he's yeah. like swagged out the Corsair ships with the his new banner, his sigil. Yeah, which I also have questions about because this implies that either he wasted more time making this standard for these ships, or he's been carrying with it, it with him this whole time. We know where he got it from, though. Tolkien Wait, has we? told us already. Yeah, when oh. um, yeah, when Arwen's brothers show up, they show up oh, with you're right, you're right. something, right? Like a rolled piece of cloth that Aragorn looks at and is like, oh. So that's the banner. Okay. I, I do remember this now. Yeah. No, he did not, like, hand sew. <laughs> He's like, guys, we gotta wait. <laughs> Complete with my wife's jewels on it. (laughs) (laughs) Who among us has not swagged out the American flag with some jewels? (laughs) Look, I don't know about you. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it was a big thing that you could, like, bedazzle your shit when we were kids. So let him have a bedazzler. I do love Arwen, like, creating this standard and then being like, it's missing just one thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then bedazzling the shit out of it before sparkle. she sends it off. <laughs> but it so anyway, like it, I guess what I was trying to say was like it implies that Aragorn's like, yeah, look at me, even though he's like just like fucked up in like a major way. He does, yeah. But it's not even really represented as him fucking up in the text. Like, no, it's not. they just all roll with it, and nobody is like. Hey, remember that dead army? I mean, even in the movies, I think Gimli has a line where he's like, "These people seem useful. Let's keep them around." <laughs> but but no, in this, no one questions it. No, one of victories so far in these books have have just been him, like, racking up uh, evidence in favor of his being the heir of Elendil. Yeah, and just uh, apparently banking on the idea that no one that like by the time he has the all of the proof to show people have not changed their minds about monarchy. I think he's banking on the fact that, like, by the time he shows up with all the proof, everyone is so desperate for a leader that they all look to him, which is somewhat accurate to what has happened. I mean, 
You could also argue that by the time he shows up with the proof, all of the other kings are dead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. Incredible Let's... strategic play. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that because we basically get the end of uh, two like possible kings of Rohan in... 30 seconds of, of this chapter. Uh, so Theoden, like, leads this ride down into the battlefield, and then, like, what felt like almost immediately, his horse is attacked by a fell beast. He is crushed under the horse. Um, also, a quick shout-out to the fact that Tolkien, like, wastes no time when he's writing battle scenes. He's just like, plot point, plot point, plot point, plot point. <laughs> like, there's very little time or pausing in between the things that happen. We were two pages into this chapter before Theoden was, like, dying. Yeah, I know. Fat on geography, lean on, on action. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's really not about the dramatic tension. Nope, not at all. Anyway, so Theoden, uh, like, pretty immediately... He doesn't die immediately, but he's, like, crushed by his horse, and he is dying a slow, painful death. And then uh, Eowyn shows up, has her moment with the Witch King, whips off her helmet, says, I am no man, which, again, we will get back to that and talk a little bit more about that moment. But then we get um, Eomer, like, finding the bodies of Theoden and Eowyn and basically having a full-on breakdown. And, and then he actually, in the books, does the... Uh, death ride to what is it ride to ruin. ruin and the world's no that's that might be quoting pirates of the caribbean there for a minute <laughs> no, 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 um, you got it ride to ruin and the world's it? ending the world's ending okay, okay. And, yeah. or, and then uh and then later he does it again Aramor does it again when things look even worse yeah and eowyn also has a moment where she's basically just like fuck it i'm probably gonna die but at least i'll take out the Witch King while I'm at it. And I wanted to talk about all of these in the context of what we saw in the previous chapters with Denethor and his decisions regarding himself and also Faramir. Um, We haven't seen, like, what happens yet, but this was a very different type of suicide mission, I guess they all are, (laughs) than Denethor's um, from all three of these characters. And I was wondering, like what your takes on this were uh, in in the terms of, like, what it means about the characters, the way that they choose to go out. I I mean, I don't think... To me, like, Denethor is actually the... Like, an entirely separate case. So I have a hard time looking at them and being like, ah, yes, like, let's talk about Denethor in this same context. Because I think Denethor is in a very different position than these other characters in many ways, right? Like, and... Is he, though? To I me, mean, in, in what way do you feel that? Uh, yeah, I guess I feel like he is thinking that things are hopeless, right? He doesn't know that there are reinforcements coming. He doesn't feel like there is anything left to fight for and he doesn't really feel that fighting would do anything other than potentially prolong the agony and i think all of the rohirrim are coming in thinking that something can change right like 
there is a sense of personal hopelessness in some of these cases. Like, I think Eowyn has some personal hopelessness in standing up to face the Witch King. She's not like, ah, oh, yeah, I really think I've got a good shot at winning this fight. But I think as far as, like, collective hopefulness, she still hopes that her actions will have meaning in the broader context of maybe the tide of the battle will still turn, right? If she can delay the Witch King or if she can harm him or weaken him in any way, maybe that's enough that somewhere else, someone who is still fighting has a chance to take him down, right? And also, like, like, they just have different ways of thinking about family than Denethor does of thinking about his family. Like, they're, they're all kind of, like, you know, manufacturing these family ties out of, like, as sort of, like, a manifestation of their loyalty to country or to their own people. Like, like Theoden just decides, Aomer, you're my son, right as they're about to ride into battle. Almost like it's this, like, ceremonious thing. And, like, to contrast, Denethor is nominally not a king and a servant of the, the people of Gondor, but when the rubber meets the road, he treats the death of his own sons as the death of Gondor. He can't really look back beyond that because I think he's, he kind of thinks like only I, like I'm in charge and my family has been in charge forever. And my sons who I wanted to replace me when I died are, they're gone. Like it doesn't seem like Denethor really has a vision for Gondor outside of his family's stewardship. Do you guys agree? Which is interesting because he he knows that Aragorn is coming. Well, I don't think that he think that he thinks that Aragorn's like actually the real deal, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he yeah. has been like it has been implied to him that Aragorn is coming, but at this point, he's also like, I don't know if this guy's the real deal. I don't even know if he is actually coming. Like maybe he's been killed along the road, right? Or like maybe he's been killed trying to break through the siege. So uh, you know, it's not like oh he's here. No, in but front I of think that goes back to, to your point about lineage. about like hope, right? Where yeah, in theory he does have some things that he could hope for. I don't know. I think, like, when I was reading this, I was wondering why I was reacting so differently to these choices, right? Like, I was totally 100% behind Theoden and Aomer and Eowyn and the things that they were doing, and I was like, yes, you are correct, ride to ruin. (laughs) But but I had a very, like, opposite reaction to Denethor in the previous chapter, and I was like, you selfish asshole. Um, And I think, really, what it comes down to is what I felt like not what they're achieving with their deaths, but like, or, or their, with their potential deaths, but the manner in which they choose to die, I guess. Like, Denethor decides to die locked up in his tower, never having set foot on the battlefield, and just like, the only thing he's done basically is rip his cloak off to reveal armor underneath that's never been used. Whoa. Um, and, and in the meantime, like, I think these other deaths, or again potential deaths they don't actually all die but they are at least like taking some orcs out while they're at it is is really the best i can say yeah the medium is the message and the message is hope and the medium is killing yourself (laughs) 
that's bleak. I don't. No, I don't know about that. Well, and I would also say though, kind of in line with that point, there's a to me the difference. Then, as you were talking, I was thinking about it. Is maybe what they feel is worth sacrificing themselves for, right? Because that at the end of the day, the thing that finally swayed me around Eowyn was that. You know, she talks a big game about wanting to die for personal glory. And I've shared on the pod already that I have some objections to that in the context of a leader. But at, at when it finally comes down to it, the thing she decides she's going to sacrifice herself for is to protect the body of her dying father figure. And that's a really, like, meaningful choice to me about... At the end of the day, what matters to you is protecting the person that you care about, right? And at the end of the day, what Denethor cares about is a very warped version of that, that he is protecting the idea of Faramir or the idea of the stewards of Gondor, but he doesn't really end up actually taking actions to protect his real still-living son, also, I think everyone in Middle Earth needs a lesson on how to check pulses because <laughs> for some reason there are multiple moments of everyone acting like somebody is dead and then like somebody like the Prince of Dol Amroth strides over and is like, what are you doing? This person is alive. <laughs> yeah. The, the movies, by the way, do set it up very clearly such that you think about Theoden and Aragorn and Denethor as like these three competing ideas or, like, semi-competing ideas of what a ruler should look like. And so you do think of, like, you're like, oh, yeah, we love Theoden and we hate Anathor. And in the book, it's not so simple. But right? I still end up with that, I like, still end result. I love Theoden, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, like, but, I mean, you think about, like, the way, I guess, like, the way that they choose to go out. But, like, you don't think about, like, them as people. You're not like, oh, like, this individual is, like, a lot a lot better than this other individual. If anything, Well, except like, for the way that Denethor treats Faramir, which is pretty awful in both books. Oh, yeah, and movie. for sure. <laughs> but, like, I mean, most of this, I think, like, what we're coming around to is, like, most of the stuff around how they choose to die is, like, contextual and has to do with, like, not only the positions that they're in, respectively, but also, like, their, uh, like, customs and... Because you can't really see, even in, like, Denethor's place, you can't really see Theoden, like going full, you know, burning myself alive. Like, that's a little extra for him. He wouldn't do it. It feels like he would ride out into battle, and he he kind of just has multiple times. Right. Well, or, like, even if he was in Denethor's shoes, when we've seen him be, like, influenced by evil, it's inaction, right? Right. That is his particular flaw. Yeah. So it seems like Although his son also dies while he does nothing. I mean, he doesn't actively burn him, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's supposed to be, like, I, I guess that's, like, that's part of the that's part of the context part here. Like, in yeah. between, like, their two storylines, what's always painted as, like, the, the thing not to do is to not do anything and to, like, treat yourself as, like, the center of the story. Well, that was another thing that I picked up on in this chapter, which has kind of been a theme throughout the series... These are nominally chapters from Mary's point of view, um, although we get a lot of other like things happening. And I think, you know, we get it, the the continuation of the theme of not actively brave choices being made, but that the brave thing to do is just to like continue 
carrying on. And I saw that too in Ishani, what you were saying about Eowyn, where when it comes down to it, like her ideas of glory meant nothing in comparison to just like the things that she knew and held dear already. And I think you also get that from the hobbits in the sense of like, they all go through this time of imagining some visions of grandeur of their journey or their adventure or or even just like going back to the Shire and then they like continuously see that that's not what's happening but then just keep going anyway and I think that's why the thing that Denethor does seems to stand out where he he basically is like I'm not going to keep going and that is contrasted with all these characters that choose to anyway yeah it's weird because like Theoden definitely and Aomer too, they see themselves as, you know, people who are theoretically going to have songs sung about them and lays laid about them. But for all of that, Denethor is like the one that really uh, treats his own actions as what am I going to be remembered for? Right? Like it seems like when he sets or prepares to set him and himself, him and himself, it seems like when he prepares to set him and his son on fire, it's partially done in order to kind of consecrate their bodies in this temple of kings. And I think that that's, I think that he does that because he's like, all right, all else being equal, it seems like the, like I'm more likely to get an honorable death here or a, a death that will be remembered well here in this tomb than I would out on the battlefield where I'm just going to get fucked up and torn apart and nobody's going to remember me. And maybe that's because Denethor realizes that nobody loves him, and no one will ever come to his defense the way Eowyn comes to Theoden's defense. If someone began to tear Denethor apart, everyone would be like, okay. I mean, people love Theoden's damn horse more than they love Denethor. <laughs> like, yeah. Do you know, I mean, like, genuinely, I will... Uh, slightly grim horse girl knowledge here, but it, like, takes a fucking backhoe to bury a horse like i, I can't, can't imagine just, right so like uh, you could not just casually be like let's just bang out a grave for this like war horse in like half an hour i don't know maybe they enlisted one of the trolls that was fighting for the enemy i was just gonna say that could be another job for those dead guys <laughs> oh yeah i don't know if they can yeah, pick up like a uses. shovel though it might just their arms might just pass right through it It'd be, it'd be funny if, like, how they took the Corsair ships was just by going, ooh. <laughs> it's like that one episode of Spongebob where he's, like, teaching them how to haunt people. <laughs> how did he do <laughs> Aragorn's like, I think this, this, crazy that this worked this one time. I'm gonna not risk it on the Battle of Pelennor. No. Is there anything else you guys wanted to say about Eowyn? Because I know that We've built up this moment a lot on the pod to the extent that it is tattooed on my arm. You know, when I'm thinking about, like, the biggest difference in terms of interpretation, but also just the biggest difference in terms of what I wasn't expecting when I got to that bit, was she says, like, I will hinder you if I can. And then he's like, no man can hinder me. Right? And... That is so different from, like, oh, I will kill you, right? She's, like, not even trying to kill this dude. She's, like, I am just trying to get in your way. And honestly, I really appreciated that. I appreciated that. I appreciated that she was, like, being realistic about shit, but was still going to try. Even if it wasn't as dramatic. 
So I, I have another like basic question about something that maybe I missed when we were reading. Um, do we actually know leading up to the battle that this is Eowyn or did we just know because we've read this before? Because this chapter was written through the eyes of Mary, who doesn't know that Durnhelm is Eowyn until she takes her helmet off. It's definitely implied. Like, it's not explicitly stated, but I think there's enough, like, oh, clearly some shit is up with with Durnhelm that I think it's, like, it might have been a surprise to some readers for the first time, but I think Tolkien actually did a pretty decent job of laying the groundwork for it. But we don't know that it's it's Eowyn, exactly. No, it's not not confirmed until this point. I kind of love that. I think... Ishani, you had put in your notes that this moment felt less like the iconic feminist moment that we portray it as, like, after the fact, um, and more just a moment of desperation for Eowyn. And I think what you were just saying about the hinder versus kill, like, ties into that as well, where she's just kind of, like, she's not doing this to prove a point about anyone or anything. (laughs) Like, she's just there. And she's just seen her father figure get killed and she's reacting to it. And that's all this is in the moment. Um, well, isn't there, isn't there something else, too, about how Eowyn, Eowyn kills the Witch King um, in part because it's prophecy that she would, right? Well, is it prophecy that she would or is it just prophecy that no man can kill him? It's All right, well, just anyway, prophesied that like, no man. Yeah, it's not specifically to her, and it doesn't necessarily mean that it would be a woman. I mean, you could. It, this is a race. I mean, this is a world with races other than men. You could be like, "Oh, I'm an elf. I will kill you now." <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of loopholes there. If I was the Witch King, I wouldn't just walk around acting invincible. But the um, the point I wanted to make is that to the extent that really anything is a statement in Lord of the Rings, it's it's a statement that's made through these rules and destinies that Tolkien sets up for people. And like, we see kind of the, the worst of that in these chapters too, with the, um, the wild men that help the Rohirrim, uh, which kind of like call calls to mind, like when, when Tolkien describes these wild men, like calls to mind, like how the whole world is kind of painted as a place where like, native people or men who came from middle earth are sort of lesser and then like people who settled in middle earth are greater and that's just like how it is right that's uh, that, that that's like one kind of value statement that the book makes is that the settlers just happen to be smarter and more competent than the native people um and but then like another statement that the book makes is that there are situations in which a woman can do something that a man can't do and i think that's like kind of the kind of the extent to which this is a powerful scene which it kind of is right you're like okay um uh, you know you didn't like it's not only men Tolkien gave us some representation I yeah and I think when you look at it as the sum of its parts of like the things that Eowyn has said previously about being a woman and how she feels like she's in a cage that she wants to break out of, and the statements she's made about like how women aren't allowed to do anything. I think if you look at that all together, this becomes a feminist moment, where she is breaking free of the things that she saw as entrapping not only her, but all women. Is there any interpretation like of, of this scene that uh, says that Eowyn deliberately 
like broke away from the air red that was not going to go with Theoden and went with Theoden thinking that this might happen? I kind of assumed she went with him because she wanted to try and keep him safe. I don't think she That was, was... my interpretation, too. I'm just wondering yeah. now. Like... I mean, I don't know that, like, the prophecy about the Witch King would have been common knowledge in Rohan, you know? Like, I don't think that would be something that they have talked about. No, I think or... she was kind of surprised that he said that in the moment and was like, well, don't worry, I got you. I am yeah. no man. Yeah, right. it's unlikely that since they didn't know about hobbits, and right. they didn't know about Aragorn, that they would have known Which, about the prophecy around the Witch King. Yeah, and I will say, like, in the movie, I think it's it's implied a little bit that, okay, no man can kill me, and the two people who are ultimately responsible for the downfall of the Witch King are a hobbit and a woman, right? Neither of whom fit that description of like a man in the sense of as middle earth would talk about men and in mary case it's like it doubles down on this element of like um inevitability because of the knife that he uses right well and that's the thing is that knife doesn't matter in the movies but it matters in the books because tolkien decided he was like by the way this sword that mary picked up in the barrow downs in the first book like, I, I really, I mean, I think it was the first half of Fellowship, right? Yeah, that it was like chapter three are, or four. Yeah, like are in the Barrow Downs. And then he's like, by the way, you remember how the men of Westerness were fighting the forces of Angmar. And so this sword, which was made specifically to fight the Sorcerer Kings, like, is now here in time to stab one of them in the hamstring. Which That's is right. either phenomenal planning or Tolkien absolutely just lucked into it and was like, wait a minute. And frankly, my money's on the second one. But either way, you've got to give him props. Tolkien is uh, is endorsing the, the free flow of merchandise across national borders. It's funny because it really does help the story that Tolkien introduces all of these different... Like, he probably introduces, like, ten times more details then become Chekhov's gun style things where like they come around later and prove to have like a payoff, you know? But the fact that like one in 10 of them do means that you, you keep paying attention to the overall world building because you think this might be important later. And, and the whole thing like ends up being beautiful because some of it, just like life, you know, like some of what you've encountered in the past ends up like coming back to you in, in some way or another. And then some of it just kind of disappears and is like, you know, the frayed edges. Yeah. Although, okay, having said that, you're right. Like, that was genuinely a really good callback, right? This this line about glad would he have been to know its fate who wrought it slowly long ago in the North Kingdom when the Dunedain were young and blah, 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 no other blade, like, would have dealt that foe a wound so bitter. And it's really cool. You're like, oh, my God, the reason why this sword worked is because Mary picked it up all those chapters ago and then, like, a chapter later, or possibly at the end of that same chapter, they're just like, here's these eight people who also died in this battle. And I'm like, I don't know who any of these eight people are. 
So I think there's also some downsides to Tolkien's level of detail because, like, who the fuck were any of these dudes who I'm supposed to now be sad about? I mean, you could see it that way, or you could see it, like, as, you know, Tolkien is Tolkien is picking up right back up and, and giving you more, like, kind of um, what seems at first to be, like, meaningless, like, fluff character names, like, oh, these people died, but then actually, like, because you assume that they all had backstories, you kind of care about them. I didn't, though. <laughs> Yeah, me neither. But <laughs> it, you could. Well, and it was also just not super effective because it came so close right after Theoden died. And Theoden's death I actually did care about because we'd gotten to know him and I was invested. And I like, I knew he was going to die, but I still really liked him as a character. And I cared about him and I cared about his relationships with people. And so, like, that to me was much more powerful and then to try and give me a sense of like the scope of battle by just rattling off a bunch of names who we may or may not have even all encountered previously like that just really did not work for me anyways but the prince of dal amroth survived and we don't care about him I-, I do care about him he's hot no there's no proof of that the, the proof is in his name He's, he has a hot name. <laughs> what is Abraham? No, it's Imrahil. Oh, yeah. Sounds like Abraham. I like the pickup of this, like, Chekhov's gun type of insertion into this chapter, but I don't think it's nearly as successfully done as, like, other series that I've read that use this type of device. It's Did anyone else that we don't care about live through this battle? I think about, a lot of... About, I mean, how about Gerbil? Is he Who? okay? Who? The gerbil. Baragond. The gerbil? Yes, Baragond. <laughs> he has a son, Virgil. <laughs> well, we don't actually know about gerbil, but, but Baragond is still alive. Baragond was not in the battle, though. Yeah, he's in Gondor still, or he's in Minas Tirith. Mm-hmm. Arwen's two brothers survive, presumably. Oh, yeah, yeah I think they did. so. Because they didn't get name dropped in the list of dead people and one of the rangers did so i feel like they would have gotten name dropped if they hadn't made it yeah tolkien's just trying to like keep it even like hot and not hot uh because the ranger guy that died definitely was probably hot one of the weird things about this chapter too in terms of the pacing was like i felt like he kept setting up what seemed like improbable odds where he's just like now the enemy has these giant elephants and you're so screwed or like oh now another host of the enemy showed up and then like he totally skims over how they actually defeat that enemy he's just like and it was really tough but they managed somehow the northerners were better with their spears than the southerners yeah i mean this is like another thing right where like you're you're really you're sort of give it you have to take it as a given that the rohirrim are better swordsmen and fighters than any of the Southrons or the Haradrim or I guess the Southrons and the Haradrim are the same thing, but the the different um the different mans that come from other places in Middle Earth. And there's no reason that that should be true. No, other than that the Rohirrim are white. Right. I, speaking of racism, <laughs> I think we should we should talk a little bit about the wild men because this was this was a weird one. So when the Rohirrim are trying to get to Gondor or trying to get to Minas Tirith, they go through this forest that is apparently haunted because every single forest in Middle-earth is haunted. There are no non-haunted forests. 
somebody makes some comments to Mary about the fact that there are apparently these wild men living in this forest who have like poison dart arrows and um, that they might help them or they might not. And then Aomer has a conversation with their leader whose name is Gon Bori Gon. It sounds like a Bollywood movie. <laughs> it totally does. It does. Oh. I okay so we all felt like this was a little racist the depiction of these characters but like why can can we say why yes i can say why <laughs> yeah i think i think we can say why i can try i mean I, I again i think it's that it's like the it's the latest installation in tolkien's recurring theme of like these people have been here since before the Numenorians came over and, you know, before the men came out of the West and before the elves came out of the West. And for that reason alone, it's suggested they are intellectually inferior and they're like, they're literally described as behaving like animals. They're, they're later, I mean, like later to be fair, it's revealed that they're very smart and sophisticated and they have their own society. Um, but they're still, they're, they're referenced as being, um, I think the the sort of natural subservience to these settler peoples who have come out of the West, and it's just treated as though that's like the natural way of things. That like the natives will are sort of too they're too close to the earth to have any kind of right to rule, and you know so therefore they have to everything everything about the wild men that's like kind of silly like the fact that they don't like speak in full sentences seems to kind of flow from that. Yeah, the 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 way they speak I thought was really weird because they apparently know words like yonder but they also can't string together a sentence. Yeah, I mean they literally like if you if you're not reading along um they they sound like a portrayal of a Native American in a movie made in like 1953. I think that's what this is supposed to be. I mean, even the things they say which are like like the Rohirrim are like, how shall we reward you? And they're like, just leave us the fuck alone and leave the forest alone, please. Like, right. That seems very much like a old school type portrayal of how Native Americans were close to nature and how they were like, please just leave nature alone and all of these old movies. But then they also decided to like, or Tolkien also decided to be like, no, these people are physically close to nature because every time he describes them, he's like, they're squatting or like they are squat and they're like crouching down on the ground. And I'm like, just like, let them stand (laughs) and like ambulate. I mean, every time he described them, I was like, these sound like the fucking trolls from Frozen. Like you are describing the trolls from Frozen. Who are, like, rock people? Yeah. It's like he does not know, like, he does not know the difference between, like, having a grass skirt, which this guy also does, um, and, like, literally being made of grass. This I is agree big with yikes. you, know, that like, it's, this is, it's basically, like, I, it, it seems like Tolkien had, a, had some fun watching uh, Old West movies and wrote that into the Lord of the Rings. It doesn't seem like he's being, like, deliberately disrespectful here. Well, because, and like, and to go back to what you were saying, like, Theoden says, what can I give you in return? And it's, it's not like, there's not like, you want to, you want to rule with us? It's like, can I, can I give you some money? Go buy yourself something nice? Yeah, there's no, like, offer of allyship or trade or alliance between their peoples. It's, hey, you did me a favor, can I 
Can I give you a tip? Maybe afterwards the Rohirrim start doing Pukul Man land acknowledgements whenever they have a another ride. But it's like that's just about the level on which any respect or deference is oh, given to no. these people. Well, and then, of course, like, a, a chapter later, we get an out-of-far-herod black men like half-trolls with white eyes and red tongues. Oh, I wasn't sure if we were going to talk about this. Okay. I mean, I, like, I just think in that context, right, of, like, there are quote-unquote, like, good natives, and then there are quote-unquote, like, savages, and, like, absolutely the air quotes, right, about... but. Like, you can see that in the descriptions here. It's kind of, like, bizarre to me that he's chosen to do this in a world that he's built where, like, there are tree people and shit. Like, he doesn't have to draw from from his weird, like, understandings of actual people in, in, the, in our world in order to create these races. He can just make shit up, but no. No. <laughs> no, it's a very deliberate choice, and it's one that, like, he's made before, right, with the... Like, the last example I can think of is the Wild Men of Rohan, which seem to be unrelated to the Wild Men of Yeah, he really, he really loves the term Wild Men, doesn't he? Right. Yeah. I mean, they're still men. That's important. They're just not really human. Mm-hmm. They're not civilized, right? Like I'm guessing there are no Wild Elves or anything. Yeah. Are there any other races that are, like, painted as, like, native to Middle-earth, like, pre-elves? Tom Bombadil. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that... That's yeah, you're right. Tom Bombadil is kind it, right? of the like, yeah, he's kind of the exception oh. that proves the rule, right? The oldest living thing in Middle Earth. Is he still the oldest? Yeah, and like in a way, it's like his his existence kind of like I think if it if it hadn't been for Tom Bombadil, I might have noticed this pattern a little bit earlier. Yeah, but I do think it's like it's Tom Bombadil, and then it's like nature spirits, right? Because isn't Tom Bombadil's wife like a nature spirit? She's she's a a river, I think. Yeah, yeah. So like <laughs> my wife. I mean, I, but I think that's a that is in line with what you're saying a little bit, Wanda, about like the the things that are other, not necessarily fully human. Right, and Tom Bombadil is like still not really part of any governing body. He kind of just fucks off and does his own thing, and yeah. because he's just so powerful. Everybody else in Middle-earth has to respect it, and they can't just go walking around his forest and saying, oh, it's haunted, ooh. Um, man, the thing, the, the like little Sambo description of the uh, one race uh, of, of men in the Mordor army was like so... I read that, and I was like reading really fast, because I was reading it during work, <laughs> and, I, and then like I stopped like fully like a page later, and I was like, what was that other thing? you said about the the eyes and i like had to go back and i was like oh my god it's pretty bad this is by far i think the worst sentence we've seen from tolkien yeah it was not at least in uh, i mean it's just like and like we've talked about this enough that i don't know that there's all that much more to say about it but it is something where it's like you have to acknowledge that there are times where you read that and you're like he keeps doubling no, down on know? it though i mean like for example, all of the Southern army, like, they all wield, like, scimitars. And we get this whole battle where he's like, oh, they were, they were really good at fighting, but no ma- match for the Northmen with their spears. And I'm like, why? Why are they no match? Are, are you going to give us any detail about that? 
Yeah, and that's, like, why I assume that, like, there's so many, um, like, white supremacists that love this, these books, right? Because it is basically, a, like, a white supremacist fantasy novel. Um, I don't know that I would say that necessarily. I mean, I think there are definitely these things in here that if you're reading closely and you pick up on, you're like, this is gross. But I don't think that this is, like, generally a novel about white supremacy, but I think, no, there is a difference, though. Like, uh, when we say a white supremacy novel, it doesn't mean it's a novel about white supremacy. It means this is a novel that perpetuates white supremacy. Like, if you're Which already I think white supremacist, you can, like, you can read this novel, you can read this book as, like, somehow an endorsement of your views, even though I don't think Tolkien really intended it that way. Um, or maybe there's a lot of ways he intended it. I'm an Ent supremacist. (laughs) Ents are arguably the best race we have encountered in this entire book. They're also, I mean, just factually, they can't be white. (laughs) They're trees. (laughs) If you're an Ent supremacist, this is a hard read. I I have, like, one more sentence that I thought... Oh, sorry. There's, like, one sentence I thought was, like, the worst sentence ever written. Worse than the the description of the landscape as being vomited all over the, the hill or whatever. <laughs> Build it in carbon. All right, give it to me. All right, my, yeah, my quick fire is this sentence that uh, it's like, uh, I feel bad. I feel bad. We've just, we've just uh, criticized Tolkien a lot, but yeah, he's so, but he, fuck it. He says this. Mayhap in this time shall the old saw be proved truer than ever before since men spoke with mouth. what does that even mean (laughs) it's it's like it's like anti-disestablishmentarianism wait can you say it again slowly (laughs) well for i i so like first there's like a there's like a phrase that said something like um the night is darkest before the dawn or something and then and then this sentence and mayhap in this time shall the old saw be proved truer than ever since before men spoke with mouth Okay, I can parse this, though. I mean, I don't disagree with you. That's awful. My brain is leaking. But it does make sense. Yes, it does. That's pretty It's that's just pretty that bad. he's saying saw instead of saying, right? Like, as soon as you change that, then it makes sense. Does like, it? And mayhap, and in, mayhap this time, in this time shall the old saying shall be proved saying truer be than be ever before since men than... spoke with mouth. Well, you gotta put some punctuation in. <laughs> I think yeah, the funniest really part is since men smoke with mouth, though. <laughs> okay, that's pretty bad. As opposed to what were they speaking with before? Well, like, before people developed language, No, right? I got you, so but like, I just like it. Like, before they spoke with their butts. Like, when they spoke with their butts, yes. <laughs> Tolkien has a William Burroughs view of language, which is that it's a virus that comes from aliens. No, you're right. I can't actually, I mean, I sit there and I go, well, I understand what he's saying, but that doesn't actually excuse what he wrote, which is awful. My quick fire is a weird little bit of like possibly unintentional world building that I just find really funny, which is when the Prince of Dol Emroth sees Eowyn's body and is like, no, she's actually alive. He goes, are there no leeches among you? And, like, obviously, 
I am parsing leeches here as slang for medical providers who would have done bloodletting with leeches. But then that makes it really funny to me to be like, here is a world with magic and immortal elves and their current medical practice for humans is still to just stick these little slime potatoes on you and hope that it solves all your problems. They're, it's incredibly advanced, though. They've like they've done things with leeches you can't even imagine. <laughs> I mean, it's just, like, the disparity there is wild. Like, people have seeing stones that let you talk across great distances. There are walking trees. And medical technology is fucking leeches. You don't understand. The leeches are the doctors. They're They're like, are there no leeches among you? And somebody just pulls out, like, a little cup with a leech in it. And the leech is like, she lives! I'm actually now a leech (laughs) supremacist. (laughs) There was this, what I thought was a really funny moment in which Mary was all of us and he was like, where is Gandalf and why couldn't he have saved Theoden and Eowyn? You're still misunderstanding what Gandalf is, Mary. I, I really liked it, though, because it was just as if Tolkien was aware that he has not set up any rules for magic in this universe and what it can do and what wizards can do. And he, and now the characters are wondering that, too. He's like, I don't know. Is it within Gandalf's power? We'll never find out. Nope. I do. I love I love the scene at the end where Aragorn just like shows up with four dudes and turns the entire tide of the battle. <laughs> but without the army of the dead. So inexplicable. Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Navia. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, Sneha, and all our listeners for joining us on this journey. If you like what you hear, give us a rating or a review on whatever platform you listen to.